the very first social media website that ever existed on the internet was made by a black man named Omar Wasso. And then I, I actually know him because his wife is one of our filmmakers, um, Jen Brea. And so I saw him at the festival a couple of years back and I said, uh, you know, I noticed that black folks are over-indexed on social media. Um, do you think that because you're, he's half Nigerian, half Jewish, I said, do you think that, you know, on some subconscious level, you built in a methodology around social media, around the African diasporic ethos of call and response? And he said, not subconsciously, explicitly, I was trying to create a call and response website online. Interesting. And, and so that website was replicated by MySpace, Friendster, and that led to Facebook and the entire economic engine of social media, the entire kind of disruption that has happened both from a commerce and from a social and cultural standpoint comes from the African ethos of call and response. And that history is blind for us. We have no idea that right. we're resp responding to that. That was Kamal Sinclair, and you're listening to USA TBD, a podcast exploring critical issues facing America today, of which there are many. Social justice causes, systemic racial oppression chief among them, an outdated, visionless, and unsustainable foreign policy, a broken food system in which we are literally eating ourselves to death, and a political system so dysfunctional it feels almost beyond reform. All of this unfolding within a world of accelerating exponential technological change and in a country that doesn't really know itself, where myths and half-truths still define the narratives we believe in and live by. So who are we really, deep down? And how do we get here? What's actually happening today, right now? And where do we go from here, together, as a nation and a people, in a future that is very much to be determined? I'm your host, Dave Bernath. My guest today is Kamal Sinclair, who currently serves as the director of the Sundance Institute's New Frontier Labs program, which supports artists working at the convergence of film, media, art, and technology. That means things like AR, VR, and data as storytelling mediums. She's also a consultant to the Ford Foundation's Just Films program, focused on using emerging media as a tool for social justice. She's been in the art game for a long time, wearing many hats. Artistic director, writer, producer, even dancing in stomp back in the day. She joined me from her home in Los Angeles and what turned out to be a two-parter. Kamal, thanks for being on the show. Great to have you. Happy to be here. So I know we're going to hit, you know, multiple facets of, you know, a lot of the issues that you care about and you've worked on for years. But I'd love to start um, kind of out of, uh, you know, where you are now at the Sundance Institute and, and sort of I'd love to hear you sort of frame what you see both as the stakes and also just the challenges of ensuring, you know, inclusion and diversity of voices moving forward with these new storytelling technologies. Certainly. So I've been with Sundance since 2011, really, as I, I first um, came into contact with the Sundance Institute and particularly 
the New Frontier program, which supports artists that are pushing the boundaries of story, uh, mostly through technology, but really, you know, looking at how um, how to innovate in the communication architecture to make meaningful and resonant story. So I was brought in as a fellow of the inaugural New Frontier Story Lab back in 2011 um, for a project called Question Bridge Black Males, which uh, facilitated a mass dialogue among black men in America through interactive media. And that was, it was pretty phenomenal to kind of um, join a, a community of artists that were kind of breaking boundaries and kind of throwing out the rule book um, and trying to figure out how the hell do we, t- how, do, how the hell do we make meaning um, on all these technologies that are emerging so rapidly and, and, and in a context of the ways in which humanity is talking to each other, you know, communicating with each other, um, which really looks very different than what it looked like 20 years ago. Right. And so that was like how I came into Sundance. Um, and then the next year I was hired to actually <laughs> direct um, the, the lab side of the program. So New Frontier was founded by Shari Frilo, who is the chief curator, um, and she founded it in 2007. And so I was really happy to join uh, her in trying to further um, this department at Sundance. And so I've been there for a while now, and in that time, I've seen some incredible um, landmark uh, moments in kind of the evolution of story. Um, and I've also seen some things that I, I say kind of make my knees tremble hmm. um, around being at the f- kind of having a front row seat um, to particularly the birth of the immersive media, or I would say the second birth or the rebirth of the immersive media industry, which is virtual reality, augmented reality you know, hyper-reality, extended reality. <laughs> There's a lot right. of uh, ways in which people are defining that now. Um, but I, I got to be there when the prototype of the Oculus Rift uh, was actually created to bring a virtual reality piece from USC to Park City, Utah. And I was in the room when we had 13-hour waits for this pr- piece called Hunger in Los Angeles by Noni de la Pena, um, which fundamentally was a documentary about people on food lines that were going into diabetic comas because the food banks were running out of food. Mm. Um, And it was a piece about empathy. And I saw people coming out of that room with tears flowing and kind of having these transcendent experiences. Um, And that was amazing to be able to be there at the birth of this kind of second innovation cycle. But I also was literally on my feet seven hours a day, you know, at the festival a year or two later, just ushering in power um, and and introducing power to this incredible technology from heads of studios, um, heads of gaming companies, venture capitalists, uh, philanthropists, um, just you name it, they were walking through the door and I was the one walking them through the exhibition and exposing them to this incredible kind of birth of a medium. Um, and I also saw how, although the DIY culture um, of artists and creative technologists that were trying to figure this thing out in a very egalitarian way in 2012, 13, and 14, how in 2015 the money walked in the door and the money got distributed 
directly across the privilege lines that we are used to seeing. You know, although a Puerto Rican woman named Rose Troche had was had brought the project that when I walked these VIPs around, they were able to say come out of her experience. It was a piece on um, campus assault. They came out of the piece with tears in their eyes and said, "Oh my God, I had no idea that this medium could be used um, for heightened storytelling." I thought it was just a roller coaster ride or a gimmick. Right. And so she's the one that kind of shifted. I saw it happen in the room. Major, major players in the media industry changed their perspective and changed their investment in this medium. And yet she was still struggling to, you know, pay for her next and um, two virtual reality projects out of pocket while the, quite frankly, the men and mostly white men walked out of that exhibition with, you know, a million to $20 million to continue. Wow. Oh, yeah. No. And then Noni de la Pena, who was the one who really sparked, the, you know, was the kind of catalyst, the, the spark of the fire that got every, all this, this entire thing going from the technology side, because Palmer had to create a version of the USC VR equipment to bring to Park City, Utah, because you couldn't bring a $50,000 headset and all of the bells right. and whistles of it. And he created a mobile way to do that on a, a smartphone. So not only did it spark the, the, the kind of engineering the solution, but it also sparked a, a deep sense of why this medium is important. Right. And she still was struggling three, four years later to raise $50,000 for her next piece. So, and then we saw on the other side of it, 2017, 2018, the submissions went from being our first major storytelling exhibition in VR was, you know, over 60% women and people of color and women were like in the 50 percentile and people of color were in the 40 percentile of that. Right. And still, but then when we saw the submissions come in year, a couple of years later, after those big investments went in, we saw the disparity in competitiveness. Those that got invested in were just miles ahead of those that didn't mm. because they had the, the resources to fail. They had the money and the, um, you know, ability to also create excellence and perfection. Right. So that was a big aha moment for me. Um, when I, cause I had always, obviously as a woman of color in America and, and somebody who's been working in the area of social justice her whole life, um, knew all the kind of it, it, the nuances and the ins and outs of how d- these kinds of disparities exist in the world. Right. But it was such an eye-opening experience to see it happen before my eyes. Mm, wow. That's, uh, yeah, like you say, on some level, a continuum of the, the ecosystem that we live in. Uh, but on the other hand, yeah, up front, on, on a new frontier, a new setting to watch those resources, you know, get allocated that way. And, well, so, so as you face that issue, obviously you do what you can, you know, across all the, the projects you work on, the people you work with, you know, what are, what are the solves? What are the, uh, what, what do we need to do mm-hmm. as, a, as a society to try to uh, improve that imbalance, you know, going forward? And also back to that sort of my second part of my question, how do you see the stakes, obviously, if we, if we, if we blow it as a group, so right. to speak, and, and, the, and the resources get allocated the same way they did across the evolution of film or, you know? Right. Right. And I think that that's an important um, point. I, and I'll answer your second question in a second. 
but one of the things that I have to be transparent and frank and honest about is that I saw, I grew up with the same images and stories that I think we all did in this, in this country. So one of the things that I have to be very frank and honest about is, you know, because I grew up with the same kind of images and narratives that, you know, proliferate in our mass media here in the United States, at least, if not globally, um, I was able to be honest and reflect on my own bias. And I realized that I saw white men as the innovators, um, the scientists, the tech geniuses, the, you know, uh, people that have, you know, been the, you know, the film, you know, um, the Oscar award winning filmmakers. And I thought they weren't superior and that's why they continue to have such achievement, but that they came from a legacy of privilege um, that allowed them the resources and time to be in the position to innovate and be in the position to create that level of excellence. And I really bought into that notion most of my life. And then about two years ago, well, about 18 months ago, the Ford Foundation, um, Just Films program, commissioned me to look at how do we further equality in emerging media? And it sent me on this kind of odyssey into over 100 interviews with people and then a review of over 1,000 articles and trade, um, you know, uh, kind of the things that are coming through on the trades for both tech and media. And I, I scratched the surface of my own bias around who the innovator was and the innovator stereotype. And I realized that that was mythology. And then if you really look at the dawn of most of our kind of major disruptions and innovation cycles, there is diversity at its core, but we don't hear that story. Um, And so, for example, you just mentioned, you know, like how can we not fall into the same pitfalls of film? I really didn't I really did believe D.W. Griffith <laughs> and his uh, peers were the innovators of film. And then I really looked into Oscar Micheaux's life and I realized, oh, my God, this man made 49 independent films in the, at, the, in the, at the dawn of film, creating language and creating context. And I saw that. And then I looked at social media and I realized the very first social media website that ever existed on the Internet was made by a black man named Omar Wasso. And then I, I actually know him because his wife is one of our filmmakers, um, Jen Brea. And so I saw him at the festival a couple years back and I said, uh, you know, I noticed that black folks are over-indexed on social media. Um, do you think that because you're, he's half Nigerian, half Jewish, I said, do you think that, you know, on some subconscious level, you built in a methodology around social media, around the African diasporic ethos of call and response. And he said, not subconsciously, explicitly, I was trying to create a call and response website online. Interesting. And, and so that website was replicated by MySpace, Friendster, and that led to Facebook and the entire economic engine of social media, the entire kind of disruption that has happened both from a commerce and from a social and cultural standpoint comes from the African ethos of call and response. And that history is 
blind for us. We have no idea that right. we're resp- responding to that. So, and that, and that was really important for me because looking into VR, I was seeing the same dynamics happen. Um, in fact, I was interviewed by a major, major, um, news, uh, institution. I won't say names. And they wanted to interview me about a particular, um, great, amazing, you know, VR innovator and who got into the, the VR practice in 2014. Um, and I, of course, did the interview and was really, really happy to, you know, um, praise his incredible contributions. Um, and then afterwards I said, so what's the title of this piece going to be? It was for television. And they said, 2014, year zero VR. <laughs> and I had to say, wait, wait, wait. I was like, I, I'm just going to say as a, you know, just trying to let y'all know, if you publish that, you will get backlash. Right. <laughs> because, you know, you can't, first of all, it's a 40 plus year old medium. But secondly, you know, 2014 was two years after the second um, kind of, you know, cattle, the second kind of rebirth of, of trying to create an industry around this happened. And that the person at 2012 was a Latina woman. Right. And so <laughs> they were like, oh, and that piece never came out, at least under that title. Um but that's the kind, that's the way that I don't think these are malicious people. I don't think they're trying to be jerks or trying right. to oppress her her contributions. But I think it's a PR move, and it was this powerful PR move <laughs> for in one person's interest that could have done a, a huge damage to the psychology um, of the and the, and I bring up this innovator stereotype because in the research I found it is so. The stories that we tell, the images that we create, the narratives that we create around identity structures, literally, I mean, I, w- I wish we were more intelligent than this as a, as a species. They, they prescribe our behavior. They, we perform inferiority complexes. We perform superior, superiority complexes based on those narratives. Not only have you seen that in film, particularly with the image of the black male and the ways right. in which that still fuels our fear of the black male, but... If you, I found this is the last thing I'll say before we jump into that last part of your question, but I think it speaks to the stakes. Um, I, I also was really intrigued by do you know, and maybe you know because we talked about it, but do you know that women entered the computer science field at the same rate that they entered um, law and the medical field in the 60s and 70s? And they had like a steady progression. And in the legal and medical fields, they are now almost at parity with men in 2018. But in computer science, women dropped out like almost like lemmings off a cliff in, in eight, 1983-84. And do you know why they dropped out? No. Because of the stories we were telling about the tech geek identity at that time. Mm. The, the marketing campaigns for all the tech companies were targeting white boys not men, white boys, um, through, and with a lot of emphasis on Radio Shack where they were um, pushing. And then at the same time, the film community started putting out films like Weird Science, Revenge of the Nerds, War Games, um, War Games that centered the white male as the center of this kind of computer, de- this like tech geek identity. And even though women were at the dawn of coding, a gay man and a woman created the computer age in the first place, um, the images that we saw rise to uh, were of straight, cisgendered, able-bodied white males. And 
when they interviewed the women that dropped out of the computer program um, at, in colleges and the women that dropped out of their positions at computer companies, they, they basically said, I didn't feel like I belonged anymore. Wow. I've, I was, they did talk about getting hazed. So it definitely sparked kind of the lower, the lowest, like, you know, instincts of right. the men, unfortunately, where right. they started gamer gating them. Well, if the, if the women felt they didn't belong because of the, you know, influence of that storytelling, then the men would start to think the same thing. Yeah, why are you here? Right. Well, it instigated yeah. superiority and inferiority right. complexes, which before that, that wasn't an issue. Right. And so, anyway, I. I just, and even though the women, they said some of the women were getting higher grades than the men, but they still perceived themselves as inferior. So I, that's why it's, when I say that um, the stakes are high, it's not just the stakes are high for, to have equality and inclusion in, in emerging media and emerging tech. It's not just for the pure justice of it and, and the pure, you know, Fairness. equity of it. Yeah. I believe that, um, in the last 500 years of kind of rapid evolution of, you know, we've had many disruption cycles that have created the civilization that we're living in now. Um, and I think that we obviously are a long way from some of the earlier versions of this where we were still dealing with, you know, manifest destiny and genocide and slavery. But we're still repeating some of the pitfalls that we had in, let's say, the Industrial Revolution. They're calling this time the Fourth Industrial Revolution, immersive media, bioengineering, artificial intelligence, and the Internet of Things. So if we're in this new revolution, what what can we learn from previous Industrial Revolutions? What can we learn from previous disruption cycles? And the one thing that we've done consistently is be exclusionary of particular voices and value systems and, you know, kind of backgrounds. And that has shot us, I mean, well, I think Heather Ray, one of our um, filmmakers, who's an indigenous woman and an indigenous rights activist, she said at our um, client panel with um, Al Gore a couple of years ago, she said, you know, in the last Industrial Revolution, basically, we were still, indigenous people were still almost at the level of, um, we were still committing, if you know, if not literal genocide, economic genocide. Right. And we excluded those voices from participating in how we're going to set a value system around these new capabilities we had as a humanity, these new technologies. And now almost a hundred years later, we're paying, you know, the, the bill and that's right. climate change. So yeah, the, the Cherokee Indians in the Appalachians probably wouldn't have strip mined. <laughs> <laughs> right. You know what I mean? So, that's kind of what you're getting at, right? That whole holistic, healthier, different orientation toward the earth or toward the environment was not a part of the consciousness or the conversation. It wasn't, and it wasn't respected. And I think it would have taken a lot. Maybe it might have been a bit of a slower innovation cycle, but I think we might have found more sustainable approaches earlier on. Right. And still benefiting from the from the value of, of these new technologies and innovations. But now this in this time, this disruption cycle, I think is similar to when we also I looked it up who was at the table when atomic energy was a new discovery, like our ability to wield the power of atomic energy. And I looked up all the people that were involved in those conversations and they were majority white men. One woman was at the table. Right. But again, this is a huge responsibility of how are we going to wield this new power? And there was a very limited set of value systems that prescribed how we used that power. And 
Um, I think that we're at one of those moments right now. I mean, especially when you're talking about artificial intelligence, um, you know, when you're talking about bioengineering and, you know, DNA itself. They just Caltech last week, they created a um, an artificial intelligence on DNA molecules. You're talking about organic, intelligent technology. We need to have a diverse set of lenses debating right. and in consultation about who do we want to be with these new superpowers, yep. quite frankly. So that's why, I mean, the stakes are, and I think media and storytelling is always been kind of the code um, for humanity's operating system because through story and through the images we create, we define identity, we define value systems, we um, create shared learning and knowledge. Right. So if we don't get a handle on who gets to tell stories, who gets to create imagery, and who gets to imagine our future, then I think we will see another major bill like climate change, but something I couldn't even perceive of right. in our future. Well, I've got like, there's like nine entry points off of what you were, what you were riffing <laughs> on there between, you know, between the so quote unquote, the hidden figures in other, you know, in mm -hmm. these various forms, like you said, even you weren't aware. And I certainly wasn't aware until this conversation of some of the people you were talking about and some of those older technological fields and innovations uh, and then, you know, even like the, the, the news people, you know, be like reporting on rock and roll and not knowing about the blues, you know, or, or <laughs> right. jazz, you know what I mean? So we aren't, or what we eat, we're the stories we tell about ourselves uh, on That's some right. level. And uh, I'm curious, I guess, I guess, you know, then the question becomes, because one of the things I tr I'm, I'm trying to focus on with this show is like moving forward, you know, so what right. do people do? What, where do we need to see change? You know, and uh, obviously it sounds like, you know, when you're bringing in these heavy hitters, they come out of these experiences, maybe they decide to back somebody. And we're seeing a lot of, you know, certainly in the, in the quote unquote traditional forms, you look at what, what Netflix has been doing and, and all of really in film and television has been a, certainly a nice growth of diverse voices yes, it's still definitely. it's still early innings you know it's still the beginning mm -hmm. but um there's some movement there you know that's very true so um, yeah how do you think about that in terms of the emerging space and and, and really culture in general because yeah again from from a from a honest you know bedrock point of view these are really just just the the saplings and the and the sprouts of what should be a much more robust egalitarian you know playing field uh, and we certainly can't rest in our laurels and say, hey, Ava and Ryan, you know, and, yeah. and Lee Daniels and Shonda Rhimes, we're done. Like, no, 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 no. Especially when, when Sandra O oh is the first Asian woman ever to get an Emmy nom. Like, okay, we do a long way to go. Right. You know, the population of the earth and uh, what that represents. Um, you know, it, it is. It's. I mean, I have to say, I, I – is it just is it just the market opportunity? Because obviously, I mean, I mean, I, I, I'm you know, I'm 50. I'm a little cynical about all these things. I, I worry right. about the 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 intractability of some of these systems. I worry about yeah. you know, uh, despite on the on the edges of some of these problems, great innovations, great esprit de corps, good ideas, that sort of that middle ground, well, of just like. And so then I think you know, how do you move that? That was really it's, more of it's, that was just uh, like a statement, not really a question. <laughs> no, it's well I was gonna say a lot of people that I interviewed had been around for, you know, the great um, democratization in the 
you know, late 90s, early 2000s with the birth of the Internet and the World Wide Web and, you know, all of these exciting opportunities for for information to, to be distributed and to right. be co-created. And so and we there was a real galvanizing feeling. And then now we're on the other side of that and seeing how these same systems that we were so hopeful for um, have been kind of co-opted for you know, creating filter bubbles and benefiting off those filter bubbles and really manipulating our sense of reality in the world based on the ways in which information is customized and distributed in a very agended way, right? Right. So I think the the cynicism, I think, is, you know, valid. Um, It was something that when I was speaking with people, they were really trying to shed, but also kind of still in a state of trauma around, if you will. Right. They're like, oh my God, I fought for this, um, you know, kind of movement of just of the internet. And, and I feel like I, I actually, you know, helped to proliferate a system that ultimately made us vulnerable. Right. I mean, that, that's sort of like, that's one, the one side of like a pernicious uh, aspect or result of this organic multi-actor, multi-people with agency moving this technology forward. And then I think on the other side, you know, there's the, like, realizing the market potential of people who have been underrepresented, which it could be, a, could be obviously the positive impact of, of you know, of, bu- of business mentality, right? Oh, my gosh, this is an underserved audience. There's, you know, because I feel like in so many of these areas, you know, love nonprofits, love the th- philanthropic you know, spirit, but if you're really going to scale and move the needle, I feel like you need that profit capitalistic, you know, not capitalism per se, but just that some of that DNA flowing through, you know, efforts that are made and that that can right. achieve so much faster uh, at scale. That feels like that's a positive well, it, thing. You it know, is, can be. It's positive if the wealth that's generated through that is also, yes. you know, not going to the 1%, right? right. So it's, it's, yay, we can now you know, benefit financially off of all the, all these underserved markets and all this underserved representation. But if that only means that, you know, the existing privileged are the ones that benefit from that, right. then you're going to, you know, I mean, it, it, I think that there's some of the social issues that you still don't unpack. So I'm going to go back a little bit. Um, two things I want to say up front before I get into this next little, <laughs> little stint of <laughs> things that I'm going to spurt out at you. Um, one for every, I asked every single person three questions. I asked them, what is emerging media? So that I could get my hands around, you know, what is the kind of scope and scale we've been talking about intervening in for equality. Then the second thing I did was ask them, what are the concerns you have? What are the red flags around equality and emerging media? And then the third thing I asked was for every concern you give me, share a mitigating potential solution, mm-hmm. uh, or, or an intervention. And so, there is a rich and long list of of um, concerns, ideas. but, yeah, oh, right. but there are also, mm-hmm. also a rich and long list of, of, of ideas for inter- inter- interrupting these cycles. So that's one. So I just put a pin in that, and I'll yep. talk through some of that in a minute. The other thing that I think is really crucial to when you're talking about um, looking at, I do believe that you need to have an economic uh, case, an economic argument right. for all of this stuff, right? Because, you know, at the base, we're, we're a species that wants to survive and survival takes resources. Um, one of the things that is really important to add into this conversation is that artificial intelligence 
being kind of the big disruptor in the room right now is a surplus technology. So you have a technology that if wielded with a particular system or value system can end scarcity right. in a sustainable way. Right. So that is a very huge statement because our economic systems have predominantly been based on a notion of scarcity. Right. Um, so if you have a system now that also might be a mythology. I mean, I, you know, I don't, been, you know, it, I'll just jump in here. Uh, you know, yeah. I, I was out at the singularity folks, uh, university out in Silicon Valley and Peter Diamandis wrote the age of the age of abundance, you know, right. And, and they're, they're big believers in that, right. In terms of, you know, little, you know, solar cells that can be on your, your house in Africa and give you, you know, internet access and, these countries are going to leapfrog and not build old, creaky old infrastructures, and we can have abundance across all these areas of life. And it's a, it's a beautiful vision, and, it, and you're right. In some level, it seems very doable. It, it's it, one of the things that comes with that, and this is what he said in our conversation, because we'd asked about sort of the social impact of, of the wealth generation. And I think there's like, you know, there's like 10 guys trying to go to space and they're all white men that are billionaires. <laughs> yeah. So, um, and you know, and he said, I think we're going to go from a world of haves and have nots to haves and have a lots. And <laughs> which, you know, on some level, yeah. I suppose we could all say, okay, if, if citizens across the globe have good health, clean water and other various, you know, these, these necessities, um, at a certain level, then do we care if there's a tiny group that's, you know, flying around in their spaceships with gazillions of dollars? <laughs> you know, would that be, is that worth it? Is that a trade-off either that it's unavoidable or, or it's a trade-off that's worth it between the current state where, you know, even though all these indexes have improved a lot across health and, and child mortality and other things globally, there's still a lot of folks struggling and, and we still have super wealthy people, but it, it, it sort of cuts both ways. It, 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 it sounds good in terms of the everyday experience of quote unquote regular folks, and yet you have to wonder. And and when you when you add things like you know gene uh, manipulation and DNA and other things that are happening on the tech side, this almost this notion of us speciating on some level between oh, yeah. between two kinds of of paths for the species, uh, right. and not to it's, mention even the singularity aspect of emerging with AI and and and, and right. for us for all of us. Uh, so. And that's, but that's where I think that's why I think uh, an inclusive and democratized imagination of our future is critical, because I do believe that there's a lot of potential blind spots in the scenarios that you described. Right. That unless there's a robust and rigorous, you know, effort made, kind of interrogating of right. who we want to be. That's one of the biggest questions. It's not just what can we do. We I mean, we're like magic now. <laughs> we can do it's true. incredible things. It's, it literally feels like magic right now. But it's why and who do we want to be? So I think there. I don't think that the people that are in in the positions at the top of these kind of wealth and privilege pyramids are, even if they have good intentions, I think they have huge blind spots and bubbles around <laughs> what the power is that they're even wielding. No question. And I. I think that we do need to do interventions from a policy and infrastructure level, um, from the people uh, level, in order to save them from themselves, quite frankly. Right. Um, and I, I don't mean to be patronizing in that way, but I've been in rooms where I've looked at the plans for the Mars colony and everybody, all the, 
all the people that are in the traditional privilege are like jumping for joy about this utopia. And I'm looking at it with terror because I'm seeing things they're not seeing. Right. Um, because of my own, my, my particular background. I remember being, uh, you know, not to get too far off on a tangent, but I was Ta- Tangents in. are very welcome. Okay. <laughs> okay. But don't let me forget about the surplus thing. I got to okay. get back to that. Yeah. Well, I'll come um, back. When I was, it was this, must have been 2013, I was only like a year into the job and I got flown out to present on the future of storytelling to the board of one of the largest media companies in the world. And um, it was kind of humbling because I was surprised they didn't know this stuff because I was like, who, who am I? I'm like, you know, this former stomp Broadway dancer telling, right. you know, the heads of these major media companies what we're seeing. Um, and then I got invited to meet with the president of one of the major film studios about a week later. And I come into the room, and it was not that long after House of Cards won its first Emmy. And the the kind of mantra in Hollywood was, well, particularly this one woman who we met with who was running the digital studio for a major, um, you know, kind of film director, uh, said the future of Hollywood is... If you don't have Facebook or Google on your resume, you're not going to be in the, uh, an executive in the future of Hollywood. Um, and she also said that the future is uh, you don't, no content gets made unless the talent comes with audience, and that's you know millions of followers on Twitter or Facebook. And no subject is going to get made unless it's already trending on Google. So basically, the whole creative industry will shift to being reactive to data rather than instigating data right right which means it will reflect and be and spring from the current reality and the status quo exactly and then and and we know how the story so basically i'm in the room and i'm listening to this and there was this uh, silicon valley data um genius in the room me the president of this major film studio and and one of their um you know, managers or you know kind of second tier person right and we were talking through this and i couldn't help but raise my hand. And I said, don't you think that if you continue, I said, I'm already sick of my Netflix feed. Like I watched a Jennifer Aniston movie the first like week. And all I get is Jennifer Aniston movies. Like, I'm just (laughs) like, I really like to see something else. I love her, but come on. And, um, I said, don't you think you're going to cannibalize your consumer base? You're, you're going to be feeding them the same thing over and over again in this hyper-customized way, you're going to narrow their worldview. You're limiting their palate and their appetite for diverse content. So then the rest of the titles that you have in this mega database of, of stories, you're keeping them in a very narrow part of that instead of helping to evolve their palate to be able to consume all of it. You know what I mean? Right. It's like, it doesn't make sense to me. And they all looked at me like I was an idiot. They literally were like, oh, that's the Sundance independent nonprofit. How sweet person you know that doesn't get it right and um and then when i started seeing the damage of that attitude in 2013 take place in our political cycles of 2016 it was like you know kind of validating for me i was like oh i'm not an idiot like yeah we there is such a thing as filter bubbles and echo chambers but I mean, I, I, I was somebody that was very much outside of the box of the normal people that are around that table. And I contributed a viewpoint that was marginalized and excluded and seemed to seem, maybe not excluded, but basically was, you know, sh- shooed and poo-pooed. And, right. 
And that could have been a very valuable insight for how we could wield the power of data in a way that's not going to create some of the social ills that it created in terms of limiting, creating incredible tribalism and incre- you know, incredible, I mean, we're, in a, we're heading towards a violent state based on false narratives and limited worldviews, you know? Right. No, and so I, so I say that, that the, the people that I was in the room with are good people. They're not trying to create that, you know, dystopic America, but they did. Right. I mean, you know, it's probably a bit uh, oversimplifying to talk about the evolution of Hollywood, and I'm not going to glorify the, you know, the, the past so much, but it would seem to me there's no question that for the last couple of decades, at the executive level, on, you know, to some extent, you're talking about people seeking the ultimate in schmuck insurance and safe bets, and, you know, it is very much a business, and, you know, feeding theme parks and appealing to young people, and, you know, just the movie business at that high, at that corporate level is a far cry from, you know, really a creative industry in that regard. So I'm not surprised that they're looking for the next version of the sure thing, you know, which is what the promise of data might, might you know, make them believe they can, uh, but, they can have. And then, but, and I agree 100% with that analysis. The other thing that I have to say, though, that one of the people I interviewed was Maureen Fan. She's the CEO of Baobab Studios and the only woman to receive major investment in the VR space. Um, and she's, you know, comes with Stanford, Harvard, Pixar, Zynga, <laughs> you know, she's right. like got the resume, like, and she's Taiwanese and the, the kind of the early investment came out of, um, out of, uh, you know, kind of, uh, Hong Kong and Asian investment markets, not out of the U S. Um, but she <laughs> said to me in the interview when she was at, um, Zynga and she was on the Farmville team, she proposed, you know, adding more story into the casual gaming, which, you know, the money in the casual gaming is, you know, quick, addictive, right. you know, uh, dopamine you need hits. to buy the next, yeah, you need to get that, buy that next packet of gold coins or whatever it is to, to be able to continue to play. Um, and she introduced this idea of creating more story into the system and again was poo-pooed and was like, we got to make money. This is the cash cow. We can't be trying to mess with the formula. <laughs> you know? Right. Um, but she got, she, she was able to bring in a lot of metrics and a lot of research, lay it out and say, just give me a chance to play with this formula. She did. And although the quick, um, you know, the kind of quick, uh, low hanging fruit money did not come in in the same way that it normally does, right. the long term, uh, revenue was much higher. Because she was able to create a kind of loyalty, instead of just burning out the consumer until they're completely sick of it, she created um, a story world and a relationship that lasted longer and ultimately brought in more revenue. So, you know, there is again, and, and she brought a very different perspective. It was a very male space right. with a very specific kind of, uh, you know, kind of fields of knowledge that inform that. So, it, there is. I've seen where small interventions can have huge impact. I mean, even in our experience at Sundance, we started to see Noni de la Pena get kind of pushed to the side in terms of the fervor around the, this kind of VR moment that was happening in 2016. And we were concerned that she was going to get erased in the history. So we started just talking about her at every possible moment we could in front of press. Right. We put her in, in front of major audiences on a 
on a speaking platform and she got the, and Gadget gave her the title Godmother of VR. And she went from kind of quickly getting lost in the history to being invited to sit at the table with the prince in the UK and sitting next to Eric Schmidt. Wow. So, you know, I, that was a very simple intervention. It did not take a lot for us to just be thoughtful about mentioning her name every time we were in press junkets. But that had a huge change in solidifying her role right. and her visibility and disrupting the innovator stereotype. My thanks again to Kamal Sinclair. Please come back next week for part two of our conversation. Thanks for listening to USA TBD. Please rate, review, and subscribe to the show and help us spread the word to family, friends, and the multitudes on social media. Also be sure to follow us on Twitter and Instagram at USA TBD. Thanks to my editor and engineer, Alex Bazell. We'll see you next time.